Hello from David Rutledge and welcome to this week's edition of Encounter here on RN. Today we're looking at whistleblowers. They perform a valuable service in a world where large corporate entities have a lot of power but not always a lot of moral restraint in protecting and furthering their interests. As we'll be hearing, though, things don't always go well for the whistleblower. Names like Julian Assange and Edward Snowden immediately spring to mind, and recently we've heard that former union official Brian Fitzpatrick has received death threats for his lifting the lid on corruption in the building industry. It's a lonely and a risky undertaking, but it's also an honourable one, and indeed there's a sense in which the whistleblower is working in a tradition that goes all the way back to the ancient Hebrew prophets. The program's produced by Wendy Barnaby. I was just very shocked by the fact that I was seeing such behaviour and and such terrible standards. And I think in general, my kind of ethos in life and certainly the way I nurse is that I treat others as I'd wish to be treated myself. Certainly in nursing, I like to treat patients as if they were my mother, grandmother, so on. And I think witnessing such terrible things and patients being so uncared for shocked me because I remember thinking goodness if that was my grandmother how would I feel and and that was again really what spurred me on to think you know this isn't right and this isn't something that should just be ignored and and people should just turn a blind eye because it's much bigger and wider than that and it has to be stopped. I got so many letters from so many people when I went public, you know, saying, um, well done, we need people like you. That's the way that the society is schizophrenic. On the one hand, it wants people to speak up for the truth. But on the other hand, when you do, they don't necessarily follow you. And I, and I received in an envelope a metropolitan brass police whistle on a silver chain inscribed on the side in Latin, but I'll translate it, it is sweet and honourable to speak up on behalf of your fatherland. Now, you would imagine, wouldn't you, that when I received something like that, I would actually uh, get the name of the person. But no, I got a blank compliment slip, and it simply said, from an anonymous admirer. So shall I blow this whistle so you can hear what it sounds like? Please. This is a programme about whistleblowers. We've just heard Paul Moore. He tried to get the bank that employed him to make its practices safer. And before Paul, we heard Nurse Helene Donnelly, who alerted authorities to appalling events at Stafford Hospital. Helene worked in the Accident and Emergency Department of Stafford Hospital from 2004 to 2008. She was a senior staff nurse. It was a time when the health authority that ran the hospital was trying to improve its status, which would give it more independence from central government. But hospitals wanting this status had to meet certain criteria, and this could be pretty nerve-wracking for the staff, who were under a lot of pressure to measure up. In A&E, there was a four-hour target for dealing with people, by which time they should have been discharged or transferred to a ward. Helene particularly remembers one patient, a woman in her 70s who was brought in from a nursing home with abdominal pain. She came in at that point in a wheelchair by ambulance and was placed in a queue in a corridor just waiting to be seen. It got to the point where she was then allocated a cubicle to be assessed and seen by a doctor. And the sister in charge basically said that um, 
the patient needed to be moved out of the department because we were getting busier and busier and the capacity of the department was full so we needed to move patients out to make more space for other people. This patient didn't need to be undressed, didn't need to be assessed properly and she actually said that she hadn't been taking her medication and she therefore said she was a naughty little monkey and was silly and should have been taking her medication. So she was moved to a waiting area then in her wheelchair to await a transport, sort of an ambulance, to take her back to the nursing home. That was about six o'clock in the evening and she then waited there till about one o'clock the next morning before she was actually transferred home. So she was sitting in a wheelchair and all that time, in pain, in discomfort. She went home and I was on duty the very next morning and she came back in by an ambulance this time but as an emergency and she was just conscious as she came in and she died some time later. So the issue for me wasn't necessarily whether she would have died or not and even if she had been assessed properly, you know, it may have been a problem that couldn't have been righted and she would have died. My issue was, and still is, that she was given such an undignified death, such lack of respect, lack of care and just sort of common courtesy and and compassion just wasn't there. And her face, I think, will haunt me for the rest of my life because it was just so distressing. This was just a classic example for me of things that actually went on more or less every day. At Stafford Hospital, the A&E department was so short-staffed that there was generally no triage service and receptionists assessed patients when they came in. There weren't enough blankets or pillows, let alone more sophisticated equipment, to make patients comfortable. Helene Donnelly patients would be left waiting to be seen they wouldn't necessarily have access to call buzzers to alert somebody for help or even if they were shouting out verbally people didn't have the time to go to them in some cases they would have actually been incontinent because they weren't able to to get that help to to help them um, go to the toilet but then the fact that they were then left in these sheets just compounded it for me and we were not allowed to change patients and clean them up and put fresh linen on and, and so on because we were directed to go to other patients or do other things. And this wasn't always because those other patients were a priority in terms of their you know, life or death kind of uh, need. It was purely because a patient needed to be removed out of the department in order to meet that four-hour wait. Whereas for my mind, they could have waited another 10 minutes because they were comfortable, they were quite happy. It wouldn't have mattered whether 10 minutes elapsed before somebody got to them to move them to a ward. But actually this other patient who was sitting in soiled sheets and was very uncomfortable, or another patient perhaps who was desperate for pain relief and had been calling out and calling out and nobody had had time to go to them to give it. So it was those kind of conflicts and, um, and pressures on our time which I don't think were dealt with appropriately. As nurses, we were, we were run ragged, really, because we didn't have enough of us to run the shifts um, effectively and safely. And obviously that had an effect on patients, but it also had an effect on us as individuals. We, we weren't able to have breaks. We would work eight-hour shifts without anything to drink. And, you know, even having, you know, five minutes to go to the toilet would be difficult. And, and it's no joke to say that the incidence of urine retract infections within the nurses went sky high because we didn't ha- have drinks and we weren't able to go to the toilet and empty our bladders ourselves. So we were actually all effective in terms of our own health as well. At about the same time, Paul Moore was a senior employee at a bank called HBOS, formed by the merger of two other banks, the Halifax and the Bank of Scotland. Ironically, as it turned out, he was in charge of making sure the bank wasn't taking unnecessary risks. 
I was called Head of Regulatory Risk. And I conducted uh, a range of uh, investigations, reviews, whatever you want to call them, and established the fact that the bank was moving far too fast and was taking excessive risk. The bank had uh, revved the engine so high that it needed to be uh, slowed down if we wanted to avoid blowing the engine up, if I can use that metaphor. Sales targets. It was all about growth growing every product range that they could. Uh, obviously, banks primarily lend, but they also sell insurance and investment products, and they link the two together. And uh, the idea was stack them high and sell them cheap. And as a result of that, the whole focus on risk management and the suitability of those sales to customers had been thrown out the window in favour of hitting sales targets and growth requirements. I then raised this matter rigorously at main board level and shortly thereafter I was fired. It's as simple as that. Well, each individual whistleblower is completely different. Some whistleblow out of grievance. However, I think that's a small minority. The people I've seen are genuinely people, I think, who have to tell the truth. David Morgan. He's a consultant psychotherapist who specialises in working with whistleblowers or victims of corruption in business, industry, religion and the health services. Pathological truth-telling. People are sometimes compelled to do this, either because they have a moral belief that the truth is more important than their own welfare at times. Sometimes they've been Christians. A number of people I know are Catholic. Now, you could say confession's good for the soul, but in the confines of the confessional, that might be true. In public life, it's turned out not to be. But I think they are motivated by a deep moral belief that they have to do something that tells the truth. Sometimes it's narcissistic and that they actually think their truth is more important than anybody else's, and that can be a different sort of problem. And uh, I came into it expecting to find a lot of pathology going for my business, and I've been impressed, I think, by meeting people who I feel are genuinely good. Unfortunately, the society we live on don't necessarily reward people like that. The image of Christ comes to mind. They are martyrs sometimes, and they do get crucified. People in management or the people in authority who are more threatened by the truth coming out do everything they can, including employing psychiatrists and other people in the name of the institution, to prove that the person who's blowing the whistle is a not of sound mind, uh, unreliable. They can find things in their past and their history, going right back to school sometimes, that will show them out to be a troublemaker. One person I saw uh, who's working in the nuclear industry uh, tried to expose some really dangerous leaks that were going on. Uh, they find themselves, this is a, a qualified scientist, regulated to emptying waste paper baskets. And they're passed over for their uh, promotion and their life is made so awful that eventually they left. And that's a very popular way of dealing with the truth. You pathologize the truth-teller. So not only have a pathological truth-teller, which is a bit strong, actually, somebody who's compelled to tell the truth, but he is often met by people who want to turn a blind eye, you know, like we've had in the, the whole area in the Catholic Church about abuse. We'd rather turn a blind eye because the truth is unpalatable. The fact that we might have, people in authority might have colluded with something that's corrupt, either knowingly or unknowingly, is something they don't want to face. So shooting the messenger becomes the order of the day. 
Paul Moore was fired in 2003, a matter of weeks after he'd raised his concerns with the bank's board. The bank commissioned what it called an independent report into his allegations. It was drawn up by the bank's auditors, KPMG, and it described Paul as prickly, outrageous, ranting, full of self-importance. Paul Moore. You've got no idea how that affected me. And uh, I remember when I actually got sent the report by my lawyer, I left it on the, um, uh, you know, just to come through the letterbox for two days. And then when I opened it and read it out on the uh, lane outside my house in North Yorkshire, uh, the tears were just flooding down my cheek. They completely demolished me. By the way, this is quite normal with whistleblowers. They end up being demonised and publicly rubbished. Uh, because of the power of the people on the other side of the uh, on the other side of the fence, and of course it was extraordinary for me to speak up. So one of those words was correct. I do not believe some of the other words were correct. The audience has to make their own mind up when they listen to me speaking now, because this is what I am and this is what I am like. But I suppose in the words of uh, Mandy Rice Davis in that famous trial, they would say that, wouldn't they? What was it about you that enabled KPMG to say these things? It, you know, it's the fundamental question of what is it that's inside your soul and your personality. Yes, it is true to say that I am a different sort of individual to the normal kind of person. I'm a truth seeker. At Stafford Hospital, nurse Helene Donnelly was also to feel the heat. She used the internal system to file between 50 and 100 complaints about what was happening. The main issue actually surrounded the fact that certain nurses would falsify the four-hour waiting time. And this was because if we were not seen to be meeting that four-hour target, the fault or the blame would, for some reason, fall on the nurses in charge of the department on that particular shift. So those nurses then felt obviously intimidated and threatened by this. So they would in turn intimidate and threaten the nurses who were working under them. And in fairness, it is fair to say that it was very often not the case that it was the nurses' fault that patients weren't being moved out in time. It was because we were short of staff. There were not beds to actually move patients to onto wards and those sorts of reasons but for those of us who didn't want to do that and the main reason being that we felt if we were seen to be meeting that target if we were lying about it and therefore on paper everything looked fine the very real problems we had those issues would never be realized and would never be addressed and things would never improve but when we challenged the nurses who wanted us to lie about it we would then be sort of faced with with abuse and threatening behavior in spite of Helene's and others' complaints, there were no sustained improvements. She particularly complained about two sisters who were in charge of the department. They and the nurses who were friendly with them began to threaten her. And these threats consisted of threats like, um, you know, watch your back when you're walking to your car at night in the dark after a late shift. You know, you never know who might be following you to your car. They were heard saying that they were going to make it look like myself and others were making drug errors. So in terms of um, checking drugs, particularly controlled drugs, as a registered nurse, you need to check controlled drugs with a fellow 
professional nurse to make sure that everything's as it should be and correct and recorded properly and they had been overheard saying that they were going to make it look as though I'd made a drug error so that they were going to get rid of me in that way so clearly on both sort of a personal safety issue and also a professional issue it got to the point of feeling very very difficult to go into work every day because you just didn't know how things could be twisted or used and these threats increased and intensified really. And on RN, you're listening to Encounter about whistleblowers. It's easy to see why being a whistleblower can be such a stressful business. In fact, many end up suffering from post-traumatic stress. Just how common is this? Does it happen to most of them? I've come to a busy London street to the office of Cathy James. She's the Chief Executive Officer of Public Concern at Work, a charity which supports whistleblowers. It's published a study which tracked what happened to a thousand whistleblowers who've come to the charity for advice. So we looked at a thousand cases on our advice line, where they work, the sector they work, how long they've worked at the organisation, whether they've raised their concern, what their relationships are with the individuals that they're raising concerns about, what their relationships are with the company, how long they've worked there, etc. So it was quite a complicated data set. And what we did was track the first four times that somebody raised their concern, and that might be before or after they've come to us for advice. And this is where we got the data from. So in the top headlines from the research were that three out of four people were saying nothing was done about the concern. 40% were suffering personally having raised the concern. Flip side of that is 60% didn't. If you were senior, you were more likely to be dismissed than if you were junior when you were more likely to be ignored. So some really interesting data coming out of the whistleblower's journey. The other really interesting finding from that research is that whistleblowing is predominantly an inside story. So over those four attempts, most people will raise a concern once or twice and then give up. Those who do try again, that's the point at which they might go externally. 15% overall go outside. But really, people want to raise their concerns with their employer because that's actually where there's more chance that the issue will be addressed. But they also recognise it's risky to go outside, that employers are not necessarily going to pat you on the back for taking something that's going on within the workplace out to a regulator or more widely, for example. And some whistleblowers, after all, say that they raised the concerns because of their feeling for the company. They wanted the company to do well. Absolutely, they're doing the right thing. There is a very strong argument that whistleblowers are the most loyal employees you will ever have because they want the organisation to know about things that are going wrong to address it. I mean, this is one of the interesting things. I mean, it was because I cared so much about the bank and its customers and its shareholders and its employees that I felt it was my duty and it was, in fact, my specific accountability in my job to raise these challenges to the board um, that I raised them. I didn't raise them because I didn't like the chief executive or I thought he was foolish. I just thought it was one of those things. I didn't believe that by speaking up, the way I spoke up, that I would be demonised in the way that I was being demonised because for me it was a self-evident truth that I was speaking up because I cared about the other side of the the argument, if I can put it that way, because I loved them, if I can put it that way. It sounds very odd, doesn't it? Because what happens is you speak up, then the other side think that you are a, um, you know, you're, you're indulging in disloyal subversion. Do you look at this as speaking truth to power? 
Yes. I mean, the history of speaking truth to power, of course, Jesus spoke truth to power. It's a horrible history. Thomas More, Thomas a Becket, uh, Galileo. The expression shooting the messenger actually came from Greek tragedies. Throughout the history of mankind, speaking truth to power uh, has been a very, very risky business. You know, you can look at Edward Snowden, you can look at um, any of these people. It's a very, very risky business to do so. So I do think of it as that, yes. Paul Moore, the HBOS whistleblower. Nurse Helene Donnelly told me what was uppermost in her mind when she complained about working conditions at Stafford Hospital. Well, first and foremost, it was the state of the patients and also the working conditions because it wasn't always issues that affected patients directly, although indirectly they were affected. Of course, I was aware of my professional code of conduct and my duty to speak out, but it was much wider than that for me. It was my own moral code that told me that these things just simply were not right. I was so concerned about my patients. You know, it went wider than nursing. This was a, a humanity issue and a basic kind of human rights issue, really. And it was that that spurred me on, and it was that moral feeling inside that, that somebody has to do something, and who better than a nurse who is actually there to be an advocate for patients anyway. I suppose at the back of my mind there was a wider issue of the reputation of the hospital because, you know, I'm very proud to be a nurse, I'm very proud of the NHS, and, and I wanted to be proud of the place I worked. I wanted to think that we were delivering a good service to the local and wider population because that is what people deserve. Paul and Helene are the voices of today's whistleblowers. They're in a long tradition that many of us first read about in the Old Testament, even if they weren't called whistleblowers then. So what light can early Christian history throw on people who do what they did? I went to Oxford to find out. A fountain splashes in the centre of a quadrangle at Christchurch College. The quad's dominated by a tower designed by a former pupil, Sir Christopher Wren. And there have been lots of other students here who've gone on to be very famous, not least Charles Dodgson, a.k.a. Lewis Carroll. It was on the lawns in front of me here that he met the real Alice. And this college has also produced 13 or 14 British Prime Ministers. But I've come here to meet the Regis Professor of Moral and Pastoral Theology, Nigel Bigger. Nigel, you have said that in Christianity there's a strong affirmation of the responsibility of the individual. What light does that shed on whistleblowing, do you think? There's some reason to suppose that the concept of the individual owes something to the Old Testament or classical Hebrew prophet, the notion of someone who dares to stand out from the people to stand out from the mass and to criticise convention and common sense. And you find this in the uh, classical Hebrew prophets such as Amos and Isaiah and Jeremiah. And indeed, Jesus himself was in that uh, tradition, one man who dares to stand for something different and to, and to stand out. So it has to do with dissent and giving voice to dissent and having the courage to do what everyone else is not doing. So is this the basis of Christianity's attitude, say, to whistleblowers, do you think? Well, it's part of the story. Christians should be not entirely trusting of political authorities because Christians, like others, know that political authority can corrupt and the rulers sometimes rule in their own interests, not in the interests of the people. 
Again, it's not a coincidence that Jesus found himself on the wrong side of both uh, religious and political authorities in first century Palestine. So there is a model there for someone like a whistleblower to stand out and to denounce certain forms of corruption because political power needs to be held to account and uh, that means some people have to take risks. So it's, it's basically about personal responsibility, do you think? It's certainly, it's, yeah, certainly about individual conscience and the, the notion of the individual whistleblower or dissenter or prophet contains in it the idea that the individual is accountable and responsible to a a higher moral law, a law that impinges on on her or his conscience, a higher law than conventional law or custom or uh, the status quo. In criticising authority, the prophets were fulfilling a social function by holding religious or political power to account. According to psychotherapist David Morgan, today's whistleblowers also fulfil a psychological function for the rest of us. They take risks to save us from having to face life's uncertainties. I grew up in Wales, for instance. My exposure to other races, other cultures, was minimal in Wales. So when I began practising in in, uh, psychotherapy and things like that, I was exposed to people who had ideas that are completely different to mine. To begin with, one felt uh, impulse to pathologise other people's ways of thinking and cultures because they were different to me. It's easier to pathologise other people's belief systems rather than actually realise that they challenge your own. So the whistleblower, a bit like the psych- a good psychoanalyst, I would say, I think uh, confronts other people with the unbearable reality that their certainties may not be as certain as they think they are. An uncertainty, which of course we live with every day of our lives, which is one could say what religion is designed to help us with or defend us against, depending which way you look at it. The anxieties about life and death we all have to deal with from the moment we're born force us to look for certainties in life around ourselves. And then we actually fight to maintain those certainties against all odds. So the whistleblower confronts us all, I think, with uncertainties that we find very, very frightening. So do you mean that the whistleblower confronts us with the fact that the institutions mm. whom we have thought were, were yes. moral and upstanding yeah. and protecting us yeah. are not? Yeah. And because it's a terrible blow for us to be confronted with that, mm. this explains uh, some of our rejection of whistleblowers. Yes. Yeah, I think it's very frightening. As I said, we all like to think there's a parental authority. God looking after us. Well, you know, after the Holocaust, that probably doesn't bear much uh, exploration. And I think uh, then we believe in the police force. Well, that's been discovered to have corruption within it. Catholic Church, politicians been exposed for corruption. So all these bastions of beliefs that we may have believed in before up to now are very much, I think, under threat. And uh, I think that makes us all feel quite vulnerable. And uh, shooting the messenger... I suppose Christ was a messenger at one level. Shooting the messenger is one way of dealing with that. Then we can actually go back to our comfortable lives without being too disturbed. If you think along these lines, you can see again why whistleblowers are so vulnerable. But there's often a simplicity, a naivety almost, that adds to their vulnerability. They're often completely unprepared for what happens after they've spoken up. Many are simply unaware that they're letting loose a storm which will engulf them. Paul Moore. If you talk to many 
true whistleblowers, not just grumblers, but people who speak up from competence and conscience, there is a childlike innocence to them speaking up. They're blind to the what you might call the Machiavellian way in which the person on the other side might behave towards them. And you can talk to any of these uh, people who've done it. And, and when the little child in the emperor's new clothes speaks up, of course, everybody else thinks it's extraordinary. There were far more people who recognised that we were going to have a financial crisis, a major one. Thousands and thousands of experts recognised that we were going to have one, but they never spoke up. We did a survey of risk management professionals. 57% of them expected a major financial crisis as early as quarter one of 2007. And if you saw the comments that they made, the anonymous comments about not being able to have an effective means of challenging, because they recognised, unlike me, that if they spoke up, their positions would be jeopardised. And so they didn't. You'd think for somebody who was an expert in risk management that I would have understood and known and been able to say that by raising the challenges that I raised in the boardroom at HBOS, I was very likely to be fired. I didn't actually think that. Yes, I knew what I was doing required a lot of courage and it required evidence. I'm a barrister by original profession, so I had evidence that supported exactly what I was saying. I did not think anybody could get away with dismissing me. A lot of the people I've seen are accountants, for instance, who suddenly discovered, going through the audits or the accounts of where they are, that they're actually exposing huge fraud. Psychotherapist David Morgan. Now, the average accountant is somebody who's probably got to where they are, being very safe and careful and, you know, maybe slightly obsessional or whatever, not demeaning accountants, really, but they have a certain sort of personality. And suddenly they're in a world of fraud and corruption, and they have a choice to turn a blind eye to it and go along with it. They don't have that nature. Their nature is to be very careful. And so in the interest of taking care of themselves, they have to say, look, there's something wrong here. And because they've never been exposed to a world where you have to deal with the pathology of others that much, that what's rewarded is being careful and thoughtful and, you know, good at your job, I think they're surprised that not everybody else is like that. And we know that people get into power... And the cream doesn't always rise to the top, other things rise to the top. So people in power aren't necessarily the best or the most genuine or the most moral people. You could say to get into positions of power, sometimes you have to turn a blind eye an awful lot. So it's, a, it's often the, the smaller man. I've been very struck in, in the group that I run that these people are very genuine people who really thought the world they were living in was moral. The Whistleblowers' Charity, Public Concern at Work, recently published the report of a commission it set up to see how whistleblowers are faring and how their lot could be improved. Large institutions exist in a world of regulations and legalese, so when I was reading the report, two words jumped out at me. Whistleblowers, it says, are moral agents. What does that mean? I asked the charity's chief executive officer, Cathy James. It is about protecting the public. It's about making our transport systems safer, our hospitals safer, our care homes safe, ensuring that when, you know, when public services are expected to perform, they perform properly and they don't waste money. It's all of those sorts of things. It's an additional mechanism to protect society. I don't want to live in a society, however, where whistleblowers are 
the safety mechanism. It's one small part of the jigsaw that is looking at how you protect society generally and how you make sure that organisations are set up to do the right thing, how you prevent crime, how you prevent corruption. And that's one of the fascinating things about whistleblowing is because it's a cross-cutting issue that, that cuts across so many different types of issues, types of wrongdoing, types of organisations. It's something that we should all understand is in the best interest of us all. It's a winter's afternoon in London and I've come to St Paul's Cathedral. I'm here to interview the Dean, the very Reverend Dr David Ison. He has a personal interest in whistleblowing. Working in the church, you see things happening where you don't agree with what's taking place, whether it's bullying or something worse. When I went to a particular job, I'd only been there a month and my boss came to see me and said, well, you know, I've got to keep this entirely confidential, but this was a child protection issue that happened just literally over the road from me. And I watched this unfolding and the way it was dealt with and thinking this is not being dealt with in the way that I think it should be. But also the difficulty people had in acknowledging the truth as the truth came out made me think much more about how do I engage constructively with these things. The other thing was when I worked in a place called Bradford, which is a large city in the north of England, I was getting engaged with the local council and with civic life. And it was suggested I go on to what's called the Standards Committee as an independent member, which means that you're listening to complaints against members of the council as a reasonable member of the public. Uh, and what are reasonable behaviours and what are not. Um, and that was a much more technical job, but was actually very interesting for me in looking at how do you use procedures in a way that support working towards truth and openness. So you're doing as much preventative work as you are trying to pick up the pieces after something has happened. David Ison was a member of Public Concern at Works Commission, but to talk about whistleblowers as moral agents doesn't quite hit the spot for him. I think I want to put it the other way around, actually, to say that that all of us as individuals and as corporate entities, institutions, companies, corporations, whatever, we are all moral agents. Unfortunately, there are those groups and individuals who abdicate that moral responsibility. And one of the good things about many firms and corporations is that they do try, and some of them try extremely hard, to write in some kind of moral framework into the work they do. And indeed, that's also in their commercial long-term interest. If you look at the companies who've survived for a long period of time, the ones that survive and do well in the long term are the ones who have a clear moral compass and a vision about what they're for, where they're going, and what their place is in society. So whistleblowers are simply acting out, as it were, what all of us should be seeking to do. And the reason why it looks so remarkable is because they're confronting an organisation which has lost its moral compass at that point. So one of the awful things that I, I learnt on the commission is how many people blow the whistle and are then sacked or hounded out of the companies without the issues that they're raising being addressed. It made me think much harder about that and about how you can try and change the climate more generally to encourage 
the idea that whistle blowing is not like a referee blowing a whistle saying you naughty people you know I'm going to stand above you and judge you actually whistle blowing is about speaking out the truth in a way that enables those who are in need to be heard and those needs to be met and on RN you're listening to an encounter about whistle blowers the moral dilemmas whistleblowers have to face don't necessarily stop once they've spoken up. Paul Moore raised his concerns with his board in 2003 and was quickly fired. In 2005, the bank offered him a severance package for over a million Australian dollars with a gagging order attached. He accepted it. This meant he was concealing the state of the bank from its customers and employees and, it could be argued, allowing them to be put at risk. It was, he says, a very difficult decision. I absolutely uh, felt schizophrenic about the whole situation. But uh, what the listeners need to know is that I did absolutely everything in my power. I sat in the boardroom, raised the challenges in the boardroom. When I was fired, I then uh, informed the regulator, demanded an independent investigation. HBOS then appointed their auditors, who couldn't have been independent, to do the investigation. The investigation was a cover-up, and my lawyer said, there's nothing that you can do. So on the one hand, I didn't want to take the money... And on the one hand, it was wrong to take the money. And on the other hand, uh, my emotional state, my mental state wasn't good enough. And by the middle of 2005, I was a complete wreck. In this state, Paul Moore watched the build-up to the global financial crisis. He kept to the gagging order until 2008, when the fall of Lehman Brothers convinced him he should go public. A committed Catholic, he'd begun to have conversations about his situation with a Catholic friend. He spoke first on a television programme, but his real opportunity came when the House of Commons Treasury Select Committee held hearings on the banking crisis. He gave evidence to that committee on the same day as his former bosses. I asked Paul whether his decision to go public was based on his faith. Originally at HBOS, I didn't see it as a faith-led decision. I saw it as a competence-led thing. That was my job to check whether the checks and balances were correct. They weren't. I raised the challenges. I had the evidence. I could prove what I was saying. But when it came to speaking up uh, publicly in 2008, after watching the build-up of the crisis, that was definitely a faith-led thing. I felt a very strong call to witness and I'd been listening to a famous Christian preacher American woman called Joyce Meyer who did a um, CD called you can't defeat Goliath with your mouth shut and that was a very important part of the uh, decision to speak up so that was a faith-led thing and I was trying to decide how to get the detail of the evidence out into the public in a way that would be most effective and um, I'd been in Chile. My wife comes from South America, and we'd been in Chile for that Christmas. And when I came back to the UK, I was with a monk friend of mine, Ampleforth uh, Abbey Monastery he was at. And um, there I was in, the ki- in my kitchen with him when I saw for the first time they were going to interview the ex-chief executive and chairman of these top banks at the Treasury Select Committee. And bang, it was like a voice from on high that said, that's the place to witness. I've been praying a lot, I've been doing the office a lot read it, you know, uh, during that period of time, and it was a very strong, immediate call to witness. Helene's decision to tell someone outside the hospital about what was happening came about in a different way. 
All her complaints within the hospital had made no lasting difference. In 2008, worn down by the stress, she resigned and got another job. The higher-than-expected number of deaths at the hospital had triggered other concerns about it, and in 2009, an external body called the Healthcare Commission published a report on conditions there. Members of the Commission had been at the hospital before Helene left, and she'd asked to see them, but they hadn't contacted her. The Commission's report was very critical of the hospital. It described the A&E department as being fraught with hazards for patients, but its publication really upset Helene. I was incensed, really, by the reports in the media and by various politicians that this was terrible, what the Healthcare Commission had uncovered was awful, but what was really concerning was how were no nurses, no doctors within the hospital speaking out about these things. Now, having tried to do so and having tried to raise it certainly internally, This really made me angry because I didn't want them to think that all nurses were the same and all nurses were happy to turn a blind eye and let these things continue. So it was at that point really that I went external. I was no longer working for the Trust anyway, but I felt that somebody needed to know. So I got in touch with Dr Heather Wood, who at that point had led up the Healthcare Commission investigation. She apologised that nobody had come back to me but also she was concerned that none of what I told her had been, had you know, and nobody had made her aware or any of her investigators aware. So she was really concerned that if the trusts were covering that up, what else perhaps were they also covering up that they hadn't been able to uncover? So she asked for all my statements, which obviously I'd, I'd kept and logged and recorded, and she was able to then pass them on to relevant people. And I was also able to pass on my statements to local MPs who read out sections of my statements in, in the House of Commons. And this all helped to shine a spotlight really on, on the need for a public inquiry ultimately so that we could really get some openness and transparency as to what actually went on. A full public inquiry followed and Helene Donnelly gave evidence to it. The government promised fundamental change in response to its recommendations. At Oxford, Professor of Moral Theology Nigel Bigger agrees that we must hold our rulers to account. But from the heart of the academic establishment, he cautions against a knee-jerk reaction to mistakes in high places. Unlike your stereotypical liberal for whom the power of the state is the only problem, a Christian should recognise that government is is really important. Government is necessary to coordinate our different endeavours, but also to curb crime and to create security, without which very few things human flourish. So government's important, and it's it's also very difficult, particularly in a democracy. So on the one hand, yes, the individual does need to obey her conscience and stand up when called to. On the other hand, government is important and the business of governing in a democracy is enormously burdensome and and difficult. There's a a wonderful line in uh, a book by Timothy Garton Ash. The book's called Free World. It's the only line in the book I can remember. But he says something like this. He says, uh, one thing we should all take on board is that our rulers know what they're doing just about half the time. Now, you know, we can, we can uh, respond to that by um, smirking and giggling as if to say, well, uh, we expect no better of them. 
But the truth is, any of us who have had to run anything of any size and significance know that that is, that is the way things are, and we should expect nothing less of um, those in government. So life is full of risks, and we have to cope with them as best we can, but we have to expect our rulers to fail through no fault of their own and in good faith, just the way we fail uh, in our own private lives. So that's why I, I say I, I think uh, we need to be willing to be forgiving of our masters uh, as well as holding them to account. Not every failure is culpable, although um, it's reasonable to ask our rulers to give an account of why they failed. They still might not be blamable for it. Knowing what's going on, being in touch with everyone in a large organisation is very hard for the person at the top. At St Paul's, the dean, David Eisen, tries to operate his own brand of leadership. If you think, for example, about when you're working with an organisation, knowing what's really going on uh, is, is key. I mean, I'll say this, you know, I'm now running a large-ish church organisation, and wanting to know what's going on at the grassroots, uh, for me, is very important. Because I can stand up front and say, oh, life is fine, whereas down in the basement, as it were, sometimes literally down in the basement, things are not fine, and people's experience of work is oppressive or unhappy. My experience from the rule of St. Benedict, St. Benedict was the founder of uh, monasteries in uh, Western Europe in the early 500s, and he wrote a rule uh, on how to govern monasteries. And in the third chapter of his rule... He says that the abbot is in charge and takes the decisions, but unless it's a minor matter, the abbot should call together the whole of the community because God often speaks through the youngest. And he's talking about the the little boys who were there in the school. Uh, And my experience too is that God often speaks to the church, and I think to other institutions too, through those who are on the margins because those on the margins can often see more clearly what's going on and what the effects of that are on people than those who are caught up in the middle of the organisation. One of the things that that gives me uh, sleepless nights is thinking, how do I hear the voices of those on the margins in my own organisation? I did an exercise here a year ago of asking all the staff and volunteers to come and help me answer the question, what's the cathedral for? And it was wonderful to have... Yeah, the cleaner, the plumber, the head of music, all working together with people from the city and beyond to ask and answer that question. And it's been hugely helpful for us as a cathedral. This sort of openness and feedback are especially important in churches, says David Eisen. Like the Catholic Church, the Church of England in the UK has had the scandal of abuse. David Eisen thinks the church's structure of authority hasn't helped. I think there is a particular issue about the exercise of authority. And that's one of the reasons why someone like St. Benedict is such an important witness. My experience has been that there is a strand in religion, and I'm not talking just about the church, it's not just a Christian problem, but a strand in religion which starts with God and then the orders go down the chain. And therefore for you to question that in some way is questioning the authority of God. Uh, And what people do, of course, is what what I think is what God thinks. Uh, And therefore, being able to say, let's discern the will of God together, which is what 
doing things in councils, uh, in committees and so on is about, seems to be a much healthier way of doing it. And for all of us to admit that none of us have an insight into what is the absolute will of God. Uh, Therefore, the church always needs to have those feedback mechanisms. Built into, certainly the Christian faith, is uh, an essence of subversion, uh, not only in terms of prophets who come along and question things, but also in the very nature of a God who comes alongside the poor and the weak and uh, gets involved outside church much more than inside church. Uh, so there is always, and you look at the history of the church, there is always a potential for reform and challenge. Um, and any religion that doesn't have that, and any corporation that doesn't allow that, is in deep trouble. Helene's story has had a happy end. The health authority that ran Stafford Hospital was awarded its special status, but since the public inquiries reported, the trust has been dissolved. As Helene went public after she'd left the hospital, her employment has been protected. In this year's New Year's Honours list, she was given an OBE for services to the National Health Service. She now works at a neighbouring health trust in a new role. Well, as ambassador for cultural change, so if staff come to me to raise concerns or even to just act as a sort of sound sounding board, they can talk to me. We can decide between us if and how it needs to be escalated any further. But ultimately, I report directly to the chief executive and the board level so that everything that people share with me, I can act as a voice to take it up to that level. And ultimately, the chief executive knows what's going on in his trust. He knows what the culture is and where there are problems, where there are potential areas of concern. And we can hone in on those and look at addressing them and making it better. And we can also share positive stories and good practice and and where things are working. We can try and adopt those in other areas to basically give staff confidence and ultimately improve services for for patients and, and service users. I am now being contacted by fellow health professionals all over the country who have tried to raise concerns within their trusts or organisations and are feeling that they're sort of hitting a dead end and they're really concerned and want to know where to go to next. So for myself, this is clearly indicating that there's a need for this role in every NHS trust organisations and actually probably throughout the private sector as well. Would you do it again? Absolutely, without a doubt. And Paul Moore? Today he runs a consultancy on risk, governance, regulation and ethics. The man who ran HBOS while Paul was there, James Crosby, has also moved on. He was knighted for services to the financial industry and appointed to a very senior post in that world. But the day after Paul Moore gave his evidence to the Treasury Select Committee, he resigned, denying that Moore's allegations had any merit. Last year he gave up his knighthood. So how does Paul Moore reflect on being a whistleblower? I didn't expect it to have the enormous impact on my career and my life because once you're known as a troublemaker, somebody who speaks up, you're not welcomed in the uh, normal places. So I didn't think I was going to be fired originally. When it came to speaking up in public, 
I knew it would mean I would never get another job. I remember talking to Sharon Watkins, the Enron whistleblower, who told me that uh, once you've done that, then there's absolutely no way. And, and it's absolutely true that I've never been offered. I've never been approached by another headhunter, uh, even though I've been one of the top people in this area in uh, the UK. Would you do it again? Well, the personal journey has been truly a difficult one but as uh, somebody said we get transformed by trouble we only grow by taking risks and the biggest risks are being honest with ourselves and others and blessed mother Teresa said one friend told me well if I lose my reputation that's at least one less thing I've got to worry about but nevertheless it was it's a hard journey and it still is a hard journey uh, if I'd known everything that I now know, I'm not sure I would have had the courage to do it, but I do not regret having done it. And I think in some small way, somewhere, with some people, I have been able to make a difference. And, you know, the will of God sometimes puts you in those circumstances. You look at all the characters in the Old Testament, they often got put into very awkward and difficult situations. So hopefully I'll put some treasure in heaven with any luck. And that was Paul Moore, bringing us to the end of this encounter. Thanks to Jill Drabble for technical production. I'm Wendy Barnaby. Join us next week for Encounter, when we explore the mysteries of bread and wine. When Christians take Holy Communion, exactly what happens with that little piece of bread and that little sip of wine is the stuff of some very complicated theology. Everybody knows that the communion elements stand in some way for the body and blood of Christ, but are they just symbols, or do they undergo some sort of miraculous transformation? It all gives rise to some very lively debate, and we'll be hearing that far from being an abstract theological matter, the Eucharist actually undergirds a great deal of Western culture. That's Encounter, Saturday following the news at five. And for the rest of this Saturday evening here on RN, we have Away coming up after the news and then the Best of World Radio a little later in the evening. I'm David Rutledge. Stay with us on RN for the news coming up shortly. The American years. I went on the road and toured what they call the Chitlin Circuit, the black music circuit. Here I am, this white boy in this old black band, touring all over the US. I mean, I was there for the whole civil rights thing. I was right there with it. I saw some pretty scary stuff. Mike Knock, 60 years of pianist, composer, and band leader. You can chart this extraordinary life in jazz by streaming into the music from the RN homepage. 